Attention crew, this is your Captain Caliban speaking. This is a supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals, where we bring you news and tidbits from the world of Trek, also interviews with special guests, and a few little surprises along the way. This week, we're taking a look at the world of Star Trek comedy, specifically Star Trek parody on television and in other media. Parody only works when the audience has a deep familiarity with the subject of that parody. And since Trek has been with us for a half century, everyone is familiar with it. And that's what makes it ripe for parody. We'll look at Trek sketches, old and new, and I'll give you my top five list of favorite Trek parodies. I know, that that should really read, 37 hilarious Trek sketches you may have forgotten. Number 12 will really piss you off. So I'm not a good YouTuber, and I, I don't work for BuzzFeed. Zoomy. Actually, to me, SEO is how you spell the name of a minor character from David Mack's TNG novel, A Time to Heal. Remember, I said the key to parody is familiarity. And with that, let's get underway. TV upfronts are this week. The upfronts are where TV networks present their plans and schedules for the upcoming broadcast season to the media and to potential advisors. That's why they're called upfronts, as in you can buy ad time upfront before these shows even get on the air. The reason a Trek fan should be paying attention this year is that this will be our best chance to get critical information about the upcoming Star Trek Discovery, or at the very least, a release date. In fact, that's why this show is late. CBS's presentation was in the late afternoon on Wednesday, and so I pulled a hold the front page to see if we'd get any good Star Trek news. And guess what? It was sort of worth it. But first, supervising producer and Prince impersonator Ted Sullivan tweeted last Saturday that, quote, Want to thank you, I love that one, Star Trek fans, been contacted by so many, I know it's been quiet on Star Trek CBS front, but that'll change soon, hashtag excited, end quote. Ted is the guy, I believe, that was playing around on the sets of Star Trek Discovery with a Dorn doll, (laughs) sorry, that's a Gorn doll uh, that we reported on previously. This morning, that is Wednesday morning, CBS tweeted the first picture from Discovery showing Michelle Yeoh and Senequa Martin-Green on a desert-like planet, complete with goggles and kind of wrapped-up clothing. I'm not going to lie, they look like Ray cosplayers, but whatever. Late this afternoon, CBS gave its presentation for the upfronts, and remember, they have an entire schedule besides Discovery, some show that's going to sit behind the good fight on their subscriberless streaming channel, so it wasn't exactly front and center. But they did wait until the end, more or less, to announce news, which means that they get that people are hungry for it. Or they just don't have much to reveal, so drop it and run, I guess. The reveal we got, however, was significant. CBS announced that the first, hopefully, season of Discovery is being expanded to 15 episodes from the initial 13. It's still supposed to come out this fall. No specific date, though. And there will be a Talking Trek companion series on access uh, akin to the Talking Dead on uh, whatever it's on, AMC. Hopefully Chris Hardwick won't be hosting this one. Uh, I've heard a perhaps self-generated rumor that Access Hollywood's Scott Mance may be in the running. Yeah, you can check out his Twitter feed for that. And in addition to that, they showed at the upfronts and then later released to YouTube and you know what have you a two and a half minute teaser trailer to the show or just trailer don't know how those work and i'll tell you what uh the trailer itself it's got ships it's got aliens it's got weird looking klingons it's got a new transporter effect there's lots of hologram seric and lens flares like a ton of lens flares i don't know how you say bait and switch and klingon but i think this is going to be abram's light all the way no pun intended 
even after all of their reassurances that it would be, oh, it's the original series, it's not the Kelvin timeline, and so on and so forth. I, I guess I didn't expect them to put everyone in, back in red and yellow sweaters, but why not? I mean, look at all the great fan productions that make the TOS era look great. But even the new films try to update the aesthetic while keeping it somewhat old school. So this, I, I don't know. I mean, okay, clearly we're in op-ed territory, so I'll continue. I was hoping for something low-key, and this, this looks like movie bombast all the way, except at like a tenth of the budget. Some of the effects look okay, yeah, sure, but almost all of them look lifted from something else. The deserts from Star Wars, as is the hologram, the black holes from Interstellar, the Klingons. Why change the Klingons? Really, now they just look lumpy, you know, kind of indistinct. And it all seems like an apology to me. Like, this ain't your daddy's cheesy Star Trek. It's us ripping off the most profitable movies of the last 10 years. I mean, I'm sure it's still set in the classic timeline, but it looks like they're just powering ahead with the aesthetic of the new films for the sake of Flash rather than any kind of visual continuity. Because we're going to get everybody who loves the films to watch it, right? Right? No, no. They're trying to draw in movie audiences, but listen up. This is not a movie. And that kind of stunt publicity, it doesn't last. Look, look at when The Rock was on Voyager. Remember that? Zunkatze. Their ratings, which were pretty much in the toilet, got a huge boost, and then they immediately fell back down. People aren't going to stick around for something that they wouldn't normally watch. I don't watch ABC's Once Upon a Time, but if I heard that Spider-Man was going to show up for an episode and hang out with Mulan and Figment or whoever, I would sure as hell tune into that episode. Then I would stop watching after that. Look, here's what no one who owns an intellectual property has ever said. Let's market something to our aging, shrinking fan base and let 18 to 35-year-olds find something else. You can't say that as a businessman and keep your job. But no one would also say, let's take a 50-year-old property, try to sell 15 hours of it to tweeners that just wanted to look at Chris Pine for 90 minutes, and in doing so, we'll alter it so much that fans who have been watching since The Man Trap will get so pissed off they won't pay seven bucks to see Star Trek on TV again. Less, I think we've got a hit. Wow, there's, there's like two hours left in this meeting. Let's hit each other in the heads with two-by-fours until lunch. Of course, it worked with Doctor Who, so my argument is invalid. Really, I think it's about leadership. I like Nicholas Meyer. I like Kirsten Beyer. And I love Fred Dreyer. I don't think he's in this, though. I'm sure there's some fresh new talent in the writer's room. But in between Alex Kurtzman, who basically got himself kicked out of Trek films, Akiva Goldsman, who is Akiva Goldsman, and Big Rod, Rod Roddenberry, hanging around the edges of this thing, it, it lacks leadership of any real quality. In unrelated news, American Gods is amazing. You have to check it out. Now that we're done venting plasma, let's talk about something fun. Star Trek parodies. As I said before, the fact that TV audiences are so familiar with the tropes of Trek means that we're ready to laugh at it, and many comedians and comedy programs have taken advantage of that over the years. I will pause briefly here to say that if you've seen Eddie Murphy's Delirious, let's all take a moment to inwardly chuckle at his Star Trek bit, which is spot on. If you haven't seen it, I can't really recommend it, as it hasn't really aged well in terms of political correctness. To replicate the experience in a contemporary setting, try playing a Busboys album and then watching like half of Beverly Hills Cop 2. Before we get to the good stuff, however, we should talk first about the bad stuff. That is, things that they just don't work well, at least in this broadcaster's opinion. There's been two fairly recent examples of Star Trek parody in just the last few days that missed the mark by a wide margin. First, Chris Pine hosted SNL the other week, 
And he's the guy that plays Kirk in the movies. We've only got 70 minutes of Trump material this week, so Star Trek sketch, right? It's supposedly a lost episode from the original series' third season. Pine plays Kirk, but like Shatner Kirk, right? And all the other people whose names we don't know play the rest of the crew. And Bobby Moynihan plays Spocko, Spock's half-brother from Queens, complete with catchphrase. It tries to present depth to the premise by acknowledging that Trek was in trouble in its third year, and shows back then would resort to stunt casting to boost interest. I mean, shows still do. Moynihan's character is a sleazy lounge singer with a hit called Pizza Beach, and he's awful. That's it. It it doesn't go any deeper. That's the joke. Uh, The joke, I guess, in its most nebulous form, is that this would be a pretty awful show to watch. And then we have to watch the show. I mean, it goes no further than the premise. It's like the chicken standing by the side of the road and just watching the cars go by. Plus, Spocko, he's already been seen on screen. Kirk calls Spock Spocko when they're playing gangsters in a pizza the action. And I'm going to stop you right there before you suggest that they're doing a thing with Pizza Beach and Pizza the Action. They're not. Pizza is the go-to silly noun for any not-quite-finished comedy sketch. It's permanently burned into a comedy writer's find and replace. And the whole thing is introduced by Neil deGrasse Tyson, played by Keenan Thompson. I love Neil, and he certainly has exploitable foibles. That's a good band name, Exploitable Foibles. And Keenan Thompson, I like him too, but he just doesn't capture what makes Neil Neil in his impression. Ultimately, I think this sketch misses the boat by not making the sketch about the tropes of Trek or even the production of Trek. But, you know, to be fair, it's a well-trodden road for SNL, and we will talk about some much more successful sketches in a little bit. Also, fun fact, Sulu in this sketch is played by SNL production designer Akira Yoshimura. Yoshimura has been with the show since the very beginning of the show, of the Not Ready for Primetime Players, and he's played Sulu in practically every Star Trek sketch the show has ever done. Which is funny itself, and it's kind of cool, until you realize the reason that's true is because SNL has never had a featured Asian cast member who could play the role in 40 years. Ouch. The second horrible parody we've been subjected to recently is the trailer for Seth MacFarlane's The Orville, coming this fall on Fox. Look, (laughs) you like Family Guy or you don't. You like Seth MacFarlane or you don't. And your opinions on those two issues may have no correlation to each other. Personally, I I really want to like Seth MacFarlane because he's nice and smart and hardworking. And it's clear that he understands what comedy looks like. But then he delivers the saddest, most tired gags you could shudder to imagine. He's like the anti-Sandler, the anti-Adam Sandler. Sandler stopped caring so, so long ago, and it shows. While McFarlane is, he's still churning out shows and movies and gags, and they're the most unimaginative humor on TV. The Orville, sadly, looks no better than that. It's a Star Trek send-up in the vein of Galaxy Quest, but where, but where Galaxy Quest minds the tension of people who only play space heroes on TV, having to actually be space heroes... The Orville looks like it's shooting for the lowest brows in the galaxy. And no, having an alien race on the show with brows that go to their knees does not insulate you from criticism in this case. Seth MacFarlane's character is a loser who gets a chance to captain his own ship. Actually, isn't that the plot from 2009 Star Trek? Anyway, his ex-wife becomes his XO. Promise of comedy. The smallest crew member is super strong. The Klingon ripoff only pees once a month because it sets MacFarlane up for a pee joke. P. They even have to drag Penny Johnson, uh, who played Cassidy, on DS9, and Brian George, the guy who played Bashir's dad, on DS9 into it. Insert 
Seth MacFarlane is a bad, bad man joke here. <clears throat> I know, I know. A lot of the episodes are being directed by Trek alums like McNeil and Frakes, and there seems to be a lot of goodwill, but ugh. The worst thing is, now that Tim Allen is free, because his show has been canceled, it's a perfect time for someone to float a Galaxy Quest sequel series. Listen up. Following the crew on their new show from the end of the film. It's perfect. But after the Orville is pulled in its second week, it'll be a while before we see people funning on Star Trek again. Weren't we supposed to be having fun? Yeah, sorry about that. So, my top five favorite Trek parodies. Now, these are my picks. There's so many out there. Um, They're all great. I'm just saying that these are the ones that stuck with me. And here they are. Number five is, fittingly, Galaxy Quest. I'm not ranking these in terms of absolute funniness. It just fits because I've been talking about it for the last while. It's a hilarious film. It's it's a hilarious Tim Allen film, which is some kind of accomplishment. It was written and directed by some dudes you've never heard of, and it still manages to be a spot-on parody of the tropes of Trek, and it pulls off being an exciting and touching film as well. A lot of that's down to the cast, of course, with Sigourney Weaver, Alan Rickman, Tony Shalhoub, and Tim Allen all knocking it out of the park. Allen won a Saturn Award, by the by, for Best Actor, and the film was nominated for nine other Saturns, and it won the Drama Hugo that year. But the best seal of approval is that Trek actors think it's hysterically funny. They lived it, they get it, and it gets it right. Number four, as we've discussed, Saturday Night Live has gone back to Trek many times in its history, perhaps most famously in 1976, with Belushi, that's John Belushi kids, as Kirk and Chevy Chase as Spock, with Dan Aykroyd as Bones. The Enterprise faces its greatest challenge yet. An NBC exec played by Elliot Gould, who's here to take the canceled show's sets down and collect all the phasers and tricorders so they can be sent to Taiwan for merchandising purposes. It's funny, it has a great twist, and it's not actually my number four pick. No, that would be the 1994 sketch Love Boat, The Next Generation, created naturally by Gene Roddenberry and Aaron Spelling, starring Sir Patrick Stewart as Captain Stub- uh, uh, Picard on a course for romance. I love Tina Fey and Amy Poehler and and Will Ferrell, but the writing on 90s SNL was so good, they could make fun of the love boat while making fun of Star Trek. The way they send up the formula elements of both shows is perfect, and it's eerie how the characters in both shows overlap. Or that's just TV archetypes, but still. Keep an eye out on the sketch for senior senator from Minnesota Al Franken as a Ferengi, and Bernie Capel, the original doc from The Love Boat, even makes an appearance, as does, of course, Akira Yoshimura as Sulu. When Jordy yells... Out of sight. That, Spocko, is how you do a catchphrase. Number three is the Futurama original series tribute where no fan has gone before. I really don't have anything specific to say about it outside of just quoting the entire thing for 20 minutes. And it's a ride takedown and a love letter at the same time. And getting the old cast together is a great touch. And yes, it was written by David A. Goodman, who's also a writer on The Orville. So we'll see. Look, I just I just need time. Okay. Number two, the 1990 In Living Color sketch, The Wrath of Farrakhan. First, Google Farrakhan. The 90s were really weird. But basically, Jim Carrey plays Kirk, and he gets his ship taken away when Farrakhan deconstructs every trope of the show right in front of him. And he's got a few good points. Carrey gets to show the full range of Kirk, from calm leader at the start to flailing, whining enemy within Kirk by the end. Carrey is, I think, my favorite Shatner impression. Will Sasso has a great one, and they did, like, 37 Shatner skits on on Mad TV back in the day. Also, Kevin Pollock's, he's basically Shatner if you just shut your eyes. But Carrie is just, he's that much exaggerated. So it's pushed to a place where you're ready to laugh. It's an impression. It's not an imitation. 
And go figure, Living Color actually has the diversity to pull off an Asian Sulu and have David Allen Greer play Spock while they're at it. I remember loving this when it came on. And when I was watching it on YouTube for this show, I was surprised uh, and amazed to find that I could remember nearly every word of the dialogue. Fun fact, a few years later, the show returned to Trek with Star Trek VII, The Really Last Voyage, with Carrie as old Shatner and the crew on their last legs, or walkers as the case may be. Number one, and we're going back to SNL again, but it has to be the Get a Life sketch from 1986 with Shatner as himself. It's not the funniest pick, but it's extremely significant because... At least in my mind, it marks the point where being a fan of the show entered the public consciousness along with the show itself. Everyone knew Star Trek. That's why Belushi is Shatner as Kirk trying to phaser an NBC exec works or why Eddie Murphy's bit works. But it wasn't until SNL through Shatner took aim at Star Trek fandom that fandom started its long trek to the mainstream where it now comfortably, if sweatily, resides. I don't know. Maybe I'm overvaluing it. But Shatner got a book and a couple movies out of it, so who knows? Apart from its cultural significance, the sketch is just, it's right on with its observations. If you've ever attended a convention, you can appreciate the gags about $60 collectible photos or the weird, deeply personal questions that get asked to these actors whose agents sent them to an audition one time. The legend, or at least the one I choose to believe, is that Bob Odenkirk and Judd Apatow were chiefly responsible for the writing of the sketch. And if it's true, I believe it. It's the attention to detail in a joke about DeForest Kelly's hit single, He's Dead Jim, or Shatner explaining his angry outburst as being an impromptu reenactment of evil Kirk from The Enemy Within. Context and affection, that's what makes a Trek parody great. There are so many great, hilarious works about Trek that deserve to be mentioned, um, like the 1991 Carol Burnett show sketch where the, um, the Enterprise crew swaps genders when they pass through the Estrogena 7 nebula, and when Kirk goes to sickbay, everyone goes with her. Har, har, har. Uh, or the SNL sketch from the episode with, with Get a Life uh, that presents Star Trek V, the restaurant Enterprise, where Kirk and crew must defend the galaxy's most family-friendly seafood starship from Khan, the evil health inspector. A list like this would be incomplete without pigs in space, or, or Jews in space for that matter, and there's plenty of books that take on Trek. I'm thinking of John Scalzi's Red Shirts as a particular modern example. I'm sure I missed some of your favorites. Please let me know in the comments of wherever you're hearing this, or on Facebook or Twitter at EISTpod. There's no way to name them all, but that's great. That means that there's no shortage of them. There's plenty of people who love Trek so much that they want to roast it a little. Oh, the Comedy Central roast of William Shatner. There you go. Uh, while we're talking about funny books, I wanted to mention a book by future guest of the show, Dayton Ward. I swear, I swear to Kirillus, this is real. I keep saying future guest of the show. It's in the can. We've already recorded our conversation. It is coming in the future. It, I have a programming schedule, people. But Dayton Ward is a New York Times bestselling author of many novels and short stories set in the Star Trek universe. He is the namesake. Is that how it goes? Is it for... Anyway, um, the Wardy is named after him because he was the first guy to get three, count them, three stories published in Strange New Worlds. And he's very accomplished, and he's very nice, and he's very funny. And so, like I said, you're going to hear him on the show in the future. But, first of all, he is writing these things called the Hidden Universe Travel Guides, which is essentially a travel guide to places in the Star Trek universe. Um, he's got he's written one previously, came out last year, which is a guide to Vulcan, came out July of last year. And he's got one coming out this year, coming out on July 11th, 2017. It is the Hidden Universe Travel Guide, for the Klingon Empire. From the copy, 
Every major location in the Klingon Empire, from the breathtaking first city to the charming prison planet Rurapente, is meticulously mapped and cataloged. With tips on where to eat, how best to get to and from noteworthy destinations, and what to do if challenged to a Batleth battle to the death. This is exactly what you think it is, and I love things like this. Like the um, Zombie Survival Guide, like by Max Brooks, uh, where it's just... It's a reference document. It's presented completely uh, without a trace of irony. Here it is, but it's hilarious. I love things like that. Like, for instance, if you go to Kronos, you're going to need to know phrases like, which, pardon my pronunciation, but where's the bathroom? That's something you have to know, because you and I both know. You've never seen a bathroom on the Enterprise. (laughs) I can't even imagine where the Klingon bathrooms are. So, Check out the book. It is Hidden Universe Travel Guides, Star Trek, The Klingon Empire. You can find it on Amazon. Pre-order it now, just in time for Dayton to someday be on the show, hopefully around that time. And kapla. Well, going from author to author, our top comment this week from our social media comes from former guest on the show and author himself, Alan Gratz. He's at at Alan Gratz on Twitter. So, last week, we talked to Kevin Lauderdale about The City on the Edge of Forever. And one topic of that conversation was Harlan Ellison legendary sci-fi author, uh, writer of the episode in question. And one of the things that I mentioned is that if, if you know anything about Harlan Ellison, it's that he's cantankerous. I think that's fair, but I'm willing to retract it pending legal action. And it seems like many of my favorite authors, actors, personalities, delivery boys, fictional characters, concepts, whatever, they all seem to have at least one holy crap story about him in which he does something eccentric or he balls somebody out or he devours somebody whole by unhinging his jaw first. But many, if not most of those people have told me to keep those stories in confidence because who wants to get sued by the guy who wrote, I have no mouth and I must scream? Not me. Well, scofflaw, strongman and secutor Alan Gratz isn't afraid to get his hands dirty. He's a modern Rex Kramer, airplane or Kentucky Fried, take your pick. And he deigned to share two, count them, two Harlan Ellison anecdotes with us. I will just summarize them here. They both come from a certain Dragon Con in Atlanta. Alan tells us that he was at a panel with Harry Knowles, remember him? Uh, Ray Harryhausen and Ray Bradbury. Wait a minute, Harry Knowles, Ray Harryhausen. Ray Bradbury, okay, all right. Uh, Anyway, uh, Harlan was there as well, I guess. And at one point he got up to go to the next room and tell Guar that they were playing too loud. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, that's the end. No, there's more. Uh, Harlan was uh, also ranting about something until Ray Bradbury turned to him and said, Harlan, shut up. And he did. So as Alan says, I guess when Ray Bradbury tells you to shut up, you shut up. Also, if he told me something wicked this way comes, I'd, I'd run in the other direction. Uh, I guess later on in the con, he was standing in line to get some books signed by Harlan Ellison. Uh, You could only get two signed. Uh, That was the limit. And that isn't necessarily a Harlan thing because, you know, a lot of these guys have a lot of fans and they bring shopping carts full of stuff. And that's exactly what happened in this situation. He was with his uh, girlfriend at the time, now wife, and they were behind uh, a dad and his son. And once the uh, hammer came down about the fact that they needed to get two things signed, he got smart and he gave two books to his kid who I'm getting the sense was grade school, not very old. He also actually asked Alan and his girlfriend if they would take some books as well. Alan had some books, so gave them to the girlfriend. So they get up there, and Harlan, he smells something's wrong. 
uh, and he actually says to the kid, oh, this is um, this is pretty heady stuff for a grade school kid. What's your favorite part of this book? I'm assuming it's Repent Harlequin or something. And the kid, you know, of course, he, he just shrugs. He has nothing to say. And that's when Ellison went off on him. Ellison just starts railing on this kid about cheating the system and standing in line. There's all these people back here who've actually read his books. And they want to get their stuff signed. The kid is pretty much crying. Uh, and the dad is gone at this point. The dad has got his book signed and he just kept going. So the kid's all there by himself. Finally, uh, Harlan relents and um, signs the kid's stuff, probably just to get him to leave. Uh, so then Alan and his girlfriend steps up. And Harlan says, these books are actually yours, I hope. And they're like, uh, yeah. Uh, good thing he didn't ask any questions. They got their stuff signed, gave the stuff back to the dad. But that is completely in character for what I've heard my entire life about what Harlan Ellison is like. And we don't go too crazy, but if you want to hear a little more about him, you can, of course, listen to our previous show with Kevin Lauderdale, The City on the Edge of Forever. Fun. He's a fun guy. Fun. So thanks for your comment, Alan, and for putting your career and your livelihood on the line for our edification. You can find more of Alan on Facebook and Twitter at Alan Gratz and at his website, alangratz.com. Please check out his new book, Refugee, which comes out on July 25th of this year. Alan, your prize for the top comment is a free consultation with entertainment law firm Goldman, Kennedy & McKenzie, offices in New York and L.A. specializing in defamation and slander cases. You know their motto, from your mouth to our pockets. Remember, listeners, you can join in on the conversation and maybe have your comment read on the air. Just go to facebook.com forward slash E-I-S-T-P-O-D or find us at at E-I-S-T-Pod on Twitter or through our social media links on enterprisingindividuals.com. You can also reach the show at E-I-S-T-Pod at gmail.com with feedback and suggestions or just to say hello, we're waiting to receive your transmission. I'd also like to direct your attention to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash E-I-S-T-P-O-D. We work hard to bring you an entertaining and informative show every week. And if this was the 24th century where money didn't exist, we would do it merely for the sense of satisfaction. But this is the 21st century and everything seems to cost something. So if you enjoy the show and you want to help out, please check out our Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. We have many tiers or ranks at which you can contribute with different benefits and prizes you can receive. In addition to knowing that you're contributing to something you love and you're part of a larger community, anything you can contribute would be appreciated and would help keep us flying. Thank you. And that's it for this supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals. If you're an iTunes listener and you haven't yet, why not look us up on iTunes and make sure you're subscribed to the show. Also, write a little review if the spirit moves you and give us a rating. At the very least, we'd appreciate it. If you're not on iTunes, you can still subscribe to the show on Google Play or Stitcher or wherever you get our show from. And if you leave positive comments and ratings on those platforms as well, we'd be eternally grateful. I have no idea what my name is anymore. Things have been extremely busy, um, extremely busy in a good way with great uh, developments, some of which will be announced on an upcoming show uh, sometime in the near future. But things have been crazy around uh, my own uh, Starfleet command. So as far as our giveaway goes, it's still running. I haven't even checked, uh, to be honest, what's going on with that. So anybody who is dragging their feet or has not done it yet, here's the deal. If you go to iTunes and you leave us a re review and a rating, you'll be entered into a drawing to win our set of Star Trek Trivia Pursuit cards. It's not like I have my own. This is in a, in a box. Uh, this is a new one. But uh, it comes with a special Galileo Shuttlecraft holder, um, and you can use it to basically prove that you are the king of Star Trek trivia. 
or basically prove that you have a lot of work to do when it comes to Star Trek trivia. So go to iTunes, sign in, give us a rating and a review. You know, if you don't often use iTunes uh, or you haven't booted it up in a while, give it a go. Just fire it up. Or if you know somebody who has iTunes, log into theirs. Do whatever you have to do to get these cards and also to let us know how you think that we're doing because we love hearing from the fans. So the contest is still going tentatively right now, looking to run till the end of this month, which is May 31st. That's what I'm guessing. If you get yours in, if you do a review on June 1st or 2nd or 3rd or whatever, it's all going to be drawn in. We'll announce the winner that next, uh, the show that next week. So get to it if you want a great prize and you want to let us know that you are part of the crew. We would really appreciate it. Next time on Enterprising Individuals, we go back to the future again as we examine another time travel episode, this time from Star Trek The Next Generation. Captain Picard hangs at death's door and finds himself asking, what if you could go back in time and fix the greatest mistake you ever made? What if it's our mistakes that really form our strengths? What if Q is really God? Author and editor Dave Stern joins us for a look at one of the best Q episodes without a Q pun in the title, Tapestry. Next time on Enterprising Individuals. And until then, I'm your captain, Caliban, signing off and saying, live long and prosper. <laughs>